Welcome to the Right Brain Music Podcast, presented by Right Brain Records. I'm Scott, and I thank you for joining us. This episode features Jack Wright, a leading figure in the free improvisation scenes in the United States and Europe, dating back to the late 1970s. A saxophonist with a distinctive style, he is based in eastern Pennsylvania and has been touring, collaborating, and sharing his life's work with audiences on both continents for four decades. Along the way, he's influenced generations of musicians and helped shine a light on the art of free musical expression. His own music continues to grow and develop. Jack is also an author. His book, The Free Musics, was published in 2017. It is a deep dive into the largely concealed worlds of free improvisation and free jazz, each of which has unique history and impact on our culture. He has a background in academia and is both a scholar of music history and a practitioner. That dual viewpoint resonates throughout the book. A Washington Post book review said this, In the rarefied underground world of experimental free improvisation, saxophonist Jack Wright is king. I talked with Jack about his experiences and perspectives on music. Let's take a listen. I was a um, teacher at the Temple University in Philadelphia teaching European history and I got involved in politics in the late 60s and dropped out of the PhD program politics uh, fell apart uh, very, very soon and started playing the saxophone, which I had studied with a private teacher in the 50s. Towards the end of the decade, 1979, I uh, committed myself uh, very fully to the saxophone. And after about six months of this commitment, one day I just started playing uh, freely. I knew that there were people who were doing this uh, in the UK, but I didn't really connect with uh, them at the time. Uh, it was quite a while before I could find anybody to play with. Uh, free improvisation was completely no unknown, at least in Philadelphia. The idea that you could play without uh, any structure whatsoever struck people as insane. You know, like, uh, how do you know what to do? So uh, anyway, I began to find a few people, and I went up to New York and found a group up there uh, called the Improvisers Network, and they had a small uh, venue where they played, but it was completely underground because um, there was no possibility of getting any publicity for it. And the only people who showed up were pretty much other musicians. So I met quite a few people through that. In 1982, I made a record. At the time, the idea was that uh, to show that you're a serious musician, you had to at least put out one record, which was uh, very expensive at the time. But it was the only thing that was really necessary to establish yourself. I sponsored a venue uh, in Philadelphia with another guy, and we uh, did a year's worth of concerts of improvised and experimental music. Then I began touring in Europe, 
in 83, and then 85, I started touring in the U.S., eventually going coast to coast on long two-month tours, playing with anybody who was available, discovering people out on the West Coast. So I was going back and forth across the country, and eventually I got kind of frustrated with my own uh, solo playing and uh, moved to uh, Boulder, Colorado, lived there for 15 years, moved back in 2003, by which time there were some new developments uh, in improvisation. I started going to Europe again, and uh, reductionism was, uh, there were quite a few people who were playing this way, very quiet, sparse, there were, might be long periods of time where you weren't playing at all, but it was very intense and very connected with other players. Instead of playing a solo or uh, just playing alongside other musicians, you had to really uh, pay attention to what they were doing. Everything involved close engagement with other musicians. After a while, I, uh, I wasn't interested in doing this in any kind of programmatic sense, and I gradually became uh, more uh, physically active in my playing, but really uh, gained a lot from playing uh, sound and uh, multiphonics and a lot of different uh, techniques that I hadn't been employing too much uh, in the past. I feel like it's possible to uh, continue to change throughout a lifetime. I'm 76 now, and just recently I felt a new uh, splurge of techniques and new uh, intensity coming back from uh, Europe, where I played with a number of musicians in Denmark, Sweden, and uh, Norway. My playing, I'm just listening now to uh, some of my old uh, solo recordings, seeing what kind of uh, changes have occurred over the years. I'm not sure that I've ever really, uh, really changed in some fundamental way. I feel I can validate uh, things that I did going back uh, 30 and 40 years. But um, in the course of playing, you're constantly becoming frustrated with what you're doing in the present. And, um, I mean, as an, even as you're playing, you find uh, certain, certain things that uh, you've done many times before and you have to push them, twist them, change them in order to maintain your interest in playing them. You also have to find uh, partners that uh, you can work with over a period of time. Uh, I've been playing uh, for the last five years with uh, a guitarist, uh, Zach Darrup. Playing frequently with him uh, has uh, had a big impact on my music, as well as playing with a, a bass player, uh, Evan Lipson, who lives down in Chattanooga. I can tell that our music is continuing to evolve. In the fall, I'll be touring with a guitarist and electronicist uh, from Portland, Oregon, Doug Therio. I look for 
partners who are going to push me in one direction or another. Almost everyone who is entering the field of improvisation has a strong musical education. And I find this is often a uh, limitation because um, there is a tendency to go back to uh, what you know best how to do. And I think that improvisation profits most from sticking with what you don't know how to do and dispensing with what your common knowledge is. few musicians today that have not had formal education, but even those who have not are impacted by the cultural definition of music. Uh, and the main reason for that is uh, the desire to be accepted. So we have in our mind some idea of what uh, audiences expect. And um, this isn't necessarily true. This is something we project onto the audience. You do something outside of uh, people's range of experience, and they often uh, respond very positively. But they didn't know they would do that in the beginning. At first, they think, well, I want to hear something uh, familiar, something that's in my range of uh, aesthetic choice. So it's very difficult to attract people when you tell them, uh, this is not going to be something you are going to push a like button to automatically. But experiencing it live, people are, um, you know, like, well, how did you, how did you come up with that? How do you know what you're doing? When you're playing with a group, how do you, uh, how do you know how to connect with each other? Because there is obviously uh, a feeling of, of connectedness that is not based on the uh, formal requirements of, uh, of music. So uh, there's something uh, that's to me is, uh, is, is missing. If you expect to be respected as a musician, then you're going to be limited in what you, what you play. Uh, because without really thinking about it, you have certain parameters of what you're going to do. You're going to make nice sounds on your instrument. You're going to make normal, normal sounds. When you play in front of an audience, the audience will be very pleased with hearing normal-sounding music. But if you get up there and do, do something really off the wall for this conventional art audience, you might find them scratching their heads and thinking, uh, well, what's going on here? And that's not necessarily a, uh, that's not a bad thing to do, but it's not something that professional musicians are, are likely to attempt. Mm -hmm. 
we're living in a very conservative era culturally. That conservatism is uh, right at the heart of the avant-garde that we know of, uh, the names of people that we hear and uh, the people who are whose um, every CD is reviewed and who draw the large audiences. The most free playing doesn't uh, doesn't draw much of an audience. Uh, my audience is uh, about the same number as it was 40 years ago. And these are people who are going to be somewhat curious and not, uh, not as uh, clearly uh, expecting a certain thing because they, for the most part, they have not heard of me or the groups that I play with. There's no reputation. There's nowhere for people to go other than just to listen to uh, something online. Uh, there's no, you know, there's no support for them to think uh, we're we're hearing the best uh, avant-garde music that's out there today. There's no way for them. Th that's not the audience that comes to hear what we're doing. I think that um, uh, the audience in the 60s, the audience for free jazz, was also small, but it was it consisted of people who were just as conditioned, but they wanted to escape their conditioning. So they would uh, hear a record of um, Albert Eiler or John Coltrane, and uh, they'd be excited about that, and then they'd then they'd think, uh, well, what's the next step? You know, who's going to go beyond this? And so free jazz was really built on this kind of um, uh, audience enthusiasm, small audience enthusiasm for, for music that was um, going to be upsetting to the vast majority of people. Whereas today it's very hard to, uh, uh, to publicize that kind of music. Um, because the, uh, for instance, this uh, podcast, I mean, how many people are going to hear this and uh, follow up uh, by coming to a concert? You know, the, the means uh, for communicating something that is uh, going on that is exciting is really, uh, really lacking.
what makes today a more conservative uh, period. Um, to answer uh, to answer that, you really have to look at the the way the culture industry is organized compared to the past. In the 60s, the culture industry just didn't know what to do with the new things that were uh, coming up. It didn't know whether to validate them or not, and it didn't know what to validate. And it figured it out. It figured out how to how to do it. But one of the major differences in terms of how an audience uh, becomes drawn to one thing or another is the fact that the decline of print publications. Right now, there is no print publication in this country which covers experimental and improvisational music. There's a huge gap, just as there's a you know widening gap between the rich and the poor. There's a there's a huge gap between the few musicians who uh, earn a living from playing improvised music and the vast majority of people who who do not. I'm interested in playing for people who uh, don't know what's coming. The art audience is fine. That's nice. You get it in uh, uh, Seattle and the West Coast, San Francisco, certainly, and large parts of the, most of the Northeast. But when you go to the Southeast and the Southwest, you get audiences of people who are much more adventurous. If they were to say what their taste of music is, it would probably not include what I'm doing in my groups. But they go out, they come to shows, and they say, what the hell is that? And they engage, they engage with the music. They're not being fed something that they've already decided they're going to like in advance. I prefer touring in areas uh, Midwest as well. Like if you play in Iowa, people are, they're right there. They're hearing something that they don't know about and that they have some intense engagement with. They imagine that it's what goes on in New York City, but, but uh, New York, I mean, I don't, I, I can play occasionally in New York. I live very close to it, but it's really not the place to find the audiences that are really want to be surprised. They've already sorted out pretty much what they what they like and what they don't like, and uh, there's so much available uh, that why should you bother with something that you might not like? Very few of them will come out to a show of something unusual. They were too liberal. They were they were uh, they had an idea of what of what good music was. And that's just part of the whole liberal uh, ethos. Uh, you have to get into um, Trump country to find uh, people who are going to be a little more uh, open and surprised and responsive and engaged. Wait. Stop the music. Let's play back the tape. You have to get into um, Trump country to find people who are going to be a little more open and surprised and responsive and engaged. I had to make sure I heard Jack correctly. 
His inference seemed to fly in the face of conventional wisdom about liberalism and the places widely considered the most progressive. But I checked with half a dozen other musicians who echoed Jack's thoughts. It's a point worth digesting. Now back to Jack. I published a book called The Free Musics two years ago. And the free musics are free improvisation and free jazz. I trace their history from their origins in the 60s, dealing somewhat with the British uh, version of free improvisation, which I think is really the, the home of free improvisation for most people who consider themselves free improvisers today. I don't talk very much about the people who are the better name individuals. I'm trying to get at what these musics are for uh, the large number of people who actually play them. So I go historically through uh, the evolution of these musics uh, in uh, North America in particular, trying to give some picture of what this is what the community of improvisers, I mean, improvisers in the past uh, formed more of a community than they do today. Free jazz had its strongest source beginnings in uh, New York in the, in the 60s, starting with Ornette Coleman coming on the scene in 1959, and then various musicians picking it up, and then John Coltrane and Albert Eiler and Sonny Murray and Don Cherry and a whole bunch of people who are pretty well known. And their music was, you would have to characterize it as pretty much a continuous a stream of playing at the same volume level and really a definite offshoot of jazz. A lot of normal sounds on the instruments, and even though they were criticized at the time for abnormality, still there was uh, it was definitely a growth out of uh, jazz in the 50s. And that died with uh, pretty much with the death of John Coltrane in July of 1967, was continued by a number of people, but it was not uh, so much of an innovative uh, music after that that period. It was being played in the loft uh, in New York and being played around the country, but the hard-driving music that it was lost a lot of its audience. It picked up again in the late 80s with uh, William Parker, and free jazz was a still very much of a jazz-based uh, music and hard-driving Lots of notes, uh, lots of uh, very expressive, very self-expressive, and I think it still has that uh, quality. American free improvisation had its origin in the 80s as a music with some kind of communal uh, feel to it, a music that uh, you didn't have to be a professional musician in order to do it. And uh, initially, it was uh, a lot of it was very uh, note-filled and very similar to free jazz. But the distinctions began to appear in the late 
uh, 90s, in the mid to late 90s, um, when uh, uh, electronics uh, came into play, and electronics had never really had much of a much of a uh, place in free jazz. Um, so with electronics, uh, there also came uh, uh, what I talked about before as uh, reductionism, a much more uh, uh, players uh, playing much cl more closely and um, very integrated with each other so that people are listening uh, intensely to each other. In free improvisation, uh, every instrument is equal and everybody is playing uh, at the same time, even though they may not be making sound at the same time. It's not a situation of a uh, single instrument being in the forefront, usually a saxophone. My own shift from playing in basically a free jazz format to uh, free improvisation, even though I called myself a free improviser all through this period, I was following this distinction that began to appear 20, 25 years ago. Tried to play the saxophone in ways that were more textural and were more equal with other instruments rather than uh, sticking out and being out in front, making some kind of solo statement. I'm usually billed as uh, free jazz anything that I play is free jazz because I'm playing a saxophone and the saxophone is primarily a jazz instrument. At one point I said that I was playing post-electronic saxophone to try and get across the idea that uh, I'm not playing, not interested in playing uh, in a jazz uh, format. Or if I do play with, uh, in a free jazz uh, situation, I'm, I'm not going to be uh, doing the standard jazz saxophone thing. still don't know whether uh, the word jazz might be applied to what's happening now underground with free improvisation. I wouldn't hesitate to call myself a jazz musician if it's understood that this is a tradition, this is a broad tradition of experimentation. And we're just uh, carrying on from where jazz was 
stopped in its uh, commercial tracks uh, back in the back in the 60s and converted into uh, you know uh, everybody's grandfather's music in order for music to be a living thing I mean it's the same with rock music and punk people decide that it's dead and then okay forget about it and listen to the classics that's uh, that's what the culture industry does but uh, if you want to do something new and fresh then you have to just ignore that Thank <laughs> you. 
been listening to the words and music of Jack Wright, veteran free improviser and author. His book, The Free Musics, is a fascinating read and is available on the interweb. Find out more about Jack, his music, his writing, and his paintings at his site, springgardenmusic.com. You've been listening to the Right Brain Music Podcast, presented by Right Brain Records. You can visit us at rightbrainrecords.com. Farewell for now. Join us next time.